All right, let's begin with a word of prayer. Almighty God, thank you for the gift of scripture. Thank you that you reveal yourself and your work of salvation in the Bible that we may know you and we may know Christ. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So, um, it's been two years since the last time I taught Sunday school. And uh, I'm really excited. Um, we're going to talk about the organizing structure of the Bible, which is covenants. And uh, it's a huge key concept. One way you know that is because the word covenant appears over 300 times in the Bible. Uh, you see it everywhere. Um, and in fact, it's even on the title of your Bibles. The word Old Testament and New Testament comes from the Latin word testamentum. Testamentum just is the Latin word for covenant. So the Old Testament is the Old Covenant. The New Testament is the New Covenant. Jesus himself describes his mission in terms of covenant. This is Luke chapter 20, verse 22. This cup that, that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So there's a whole like theology behind that because if it's a new covenant, that means there's an old covenant. What's old about the old covenant? What's new about the new covenant? We're going to talk about that in the third class. But before we dive in, we should ask the basic question, which is, what is covenant? So this is what a covenant is, okay? A covenant is a personal relationship, but it's more demanding and it's more binding than a regular casual relationship like you have with a friend. Um, because a covenant always has legal rules and legal structures. There's rules and conditions. Yes, Noah? Oh, okay. Um, and the basic structure is this. I wrote it down. If you keep the covenant, you get a blessing. If you break the covenant, you get the curse. That's, that's covenant, okay? And the classic example of a covenant is marriage. If you think about a marriage, it's not just a romantic relationship. You're not just dating someone, but there are legal rules, right? You enter into it with solemn promises. And what happens if you keep the covenant in marriage? What's the blessing? Children. Yes, that's not guaranteed no, necessarily. You get a happy marriage, right? You get to enjoy the blessings of marriage. And what is the curse of the covenant. Yes, Judah. Divorce. divorce. Or agony. <laughs> Unhappiness and then divorce. Welcome, welcome. Um, and what makes a marriage so unique, again, is it's not just a romantic relationship, but it is, it has a legal framework to it, okay? So, God doesn't relate to us Casually, he relates to us through a covenant. He, it's not just, you know, he can come and go or we can come and go. God will never ghost us. But there are these binding legal rules that govern this relationship. There are six covenants in the Bible. We're going to go through each one of them through the course of these classes. The covenant made with Adam, with Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, and then the new covenant. Six. And sort of the tendency that people have is they think, oh, each one is sort of different and therefore it's sort of like a different story and they're somewhat disconnected and 
Um, but what I want to show you is they all interlock and there's an organic development and then therefore it's one unified story. That's my whole thesis of these classes. And the key concept that I want, if you're going to take one, one concept away from this class, it's this. Okay, The key concept is covenants are forever. Okay? Covenants are forever. Once they've been instituted or implemented, they can never end. They can never be revised. Every one of these six covenants that we're going to talk about will last forever. And no covenant can contradict the covenant before it because the rules or the the legal structure of each covenant lasts forever. That's the concept, okay? And if you can understand that, you will understand the story of the Bible, and you will understand why all the covenants together is one story, and you will understand the whole structure of the Bible, okay? So a key verse is Galatians 3, 15, and 17. Let me read it to you. Paul writes, To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. So let me just stop there, right? So a covenant is like a contract. And one party cannot unilaterally revise the contract, right? You need both parties to agree. So let's say two parties, they're like, oh, they changed their mind. They want to revise the contract. But you know what? Since God is one side of the contract, God never changes his mind. He's eternal and perfect. And so he will never renege. He will never back out of the contract. And therefore, every contract, every covenant is forever. Okay? And then look at verse 17. This is what I mean. The law, and here Paul's talking about the Mosaic law, right? The law given at Sinai, which came 430 years after. He's talking about the promise given to Abraham. That's the Abrahamic covenant. The law, which came 430 years after, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. That's a huge concept. We're going to talk about that uh, next week. But he's saying the Abrahamic covenant came before the Mosaic covenant and therefore it has precedence. It cannot be canceled. It cannot be revised. And therefore, whatever it is the Mosaic covenant is, the rules of the Mosaic covenant do not cancel the grace of the Abrahamic covenant. That's his whole point. It's not as if God switches or changes his mind. And so the Mosaic covenant is inside. It is within the Abrahamic covenant, if that makes sense. Welcome, join us. There's, there's handouts. And therefore, each covenant builds on top of the other. That's the key concept. And this is why the Bible is a single story. In fact, you can think of it as the Bible is a single covenant. And each covenant is like adding details to the previous covenant. Does that make sense? Okay. So you could tell the whole story of the Bible through the first covenant, which is the Adamic covenant, the covenant in Eden. Um, because the covenant with Adam never ends. It is still in effect today, and it'll, it'll, it'll be in effect forever, for all of eternity. And you could tell the whole story of salvation, right? There's no salvation in the garden, at least, in, you know, because there's no sin, right? But you could tell the whole story of salvation through the Abrahamic covenant, because that's the next covenant, 
There's a Noahic covenant. We'll talk about that next week. But it's the next covenant. And everything else in the Bible is just filling out the details of the Abrahamic covenant. Okay? So before we get to the Adamic covenant, are there any questions? The key concept is covenants are forever. Yes, Judah? But, like, isn't there temporarily covenants, like, until something happens and the covenant ends? No. It lasts forever. The provisions never end. Yes. Can a covenant, um, how does a covenant break? Um, one party could break it and then you get the curse. But the, but the structure of the covenant, the rules never end. The rules stay in effect. So even when you break it and you get the curse, it's still in effect. Does that make sense? But if it breaks, would it not be forever? No, cause it's still playing out. It's just, you just suffer the punishment of the covenant. Okay? Good question. Any other questions? All right. So let's go into the Adamic covenant, okay? This is the first covenant. Again, the whole Bible is, you can describe the Bible as the Adamic covenant. This is God's covenant with humanity. Again, God doesn't just create humanity and he just says, hey, let's have a casual relationship. There has to be a structure. There has to be rules, And one of the key concepts of the Adamic covenant is he makes it only with one man. And this one man is the representative of all humanity. God does not make individual covenants with each, every human being. He only makes it with one person. And whether he breaks or keeps the covenant rests, and in our fate, whether we get the blessing or the curse, depends entirely on this one man. Some of you might be, that's Romans 5, by the way. Some of you might be saying, that seems awfully unfair, <laughs> right? Why, who, who, why does he get to represent me and why, why, why is my fate determined by him? And we're going to get to that um, in the new covenant more, but my answer to that is that's how we are saved. There is no salvation without a represent, representative head. And we're going to talk about that a little bit today. But here's the Adamic covenant. Here's the basic uh uh, structure of a Genesis two sixteen and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So the covenant is very simple. It's not a complicated structure. It's a single test. Do not eat the forbidden tree. If you eat the forbidden tree, the curse is death. Okay? Very simple. Um, I want to talk very briefly about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. People, I think the name or the title of the tree kind of tricks us because people think, oh, this is a tree that gives people knowledge. And so when God forbids Adam from eating the tree, it seems like God is withholding knowledge, right? Why is God withholding knowledge? By the way, that was Satan's line, <laughs> right? That's Satan's like um, lie to Adam, I mean to Eve, right? The key is to know is, is that the word to know in Hebrew means to experience. So it's not head knowledge; it's experiential. It's it's like you know an expression in the Bible is a man knows his wife, right? That's marriage and that's you know the marital bed so the tree is where adam 
will experience either good or evil. If he obeys, he will know good. If he disobeys, he will know evil. Does that make sense? So this Adamic covenant is called, um, theologians call it the covenant of works, okay? Because that's the basic uh, dynamic, covenant of works. The key concept, of course, is works or good works, good deeds. If Adam obeys, if he does the work, he enjoys eternal life. That's the blessing. If he disobeys, if he breaks the covenant, he will experience death and judgment. Again, this is the first covenant. And therefore, the first covenant... Right? Since it's the first, this is the fundamental structure of reality. Okay? This is not some arbitrary rule that God is creating. The fundamental structure of reality is you get what you deserve. If you do good work, you get life. If you disobey, you get death. Life isn't random or arbitrary. There is order and morality because that's who God is. The covenant of works reflects God's nature, God's very being. If you reject God, you will suffer death because God is the source of life. If you obey him, if you love him, if you draw in fellowship with him, you will enjoy life because he is the source of life. This covenant, the covenant of works, the Adamic covenant, is never annulled. It is never canceled. It is still in effect today. It will be in effect forever. The gospel comes in after the covenant of works. The gospel does not contradict the covenant of works. The gospel works within the covenant of works. So remember I said that um, God makes a covenant with one man. He's our representative. And then because of Adam's actions were condemned... So here's the gospel. God says, let me provide a new man. And he will be your new representative. So there's the first Adam. So who? Sh- what should we call this second guy? He's the second Adam. That's Romans 5. And you come under his representation. And then his actions, his works, right? His, uh, his works, you receive his blessing. So we're declared righteous by him. And that second Adam, the second man is Christ, right? So the gospel is that Jesus Christ fulfills the covenant of works for us. And then how do we come under his representation? Through faith, through belief. If you believe in him and trust your life in him, you switch allegiances or you switch your covenant head from Adam and you switch it to Christ, And that's how you experience salvation. Um, You see, this 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 new covenant, and and then I'm gonna we're gonna call it covenant of grace, but I'm not there yet. But this new covenant is hinted at right away in Genesis chapter three. So let me read Genesis three fifteen. God says he's saying this to the serpent, "I will put enmity." 
so that means like hostility or opposition. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, so the serpent and the woman, and between your offspring, the offspring of Satan, and her offspring, that means her, her child, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So this new representative will be the offspring of Eve. And what God is saying here is one day a child will be born. He will undo the curse. He will crush Satan. He will fulfill the covenant of works. But in the process, he will suffer a fatal wound. His heel will be bruised, right? Any questions about the Adamic covenant before I uh, go further into the details of it? All right. So... It's pretty clear. Death is the curse of the covenant. Some of you are saying, I don't remember recall seeing the blessing in the Adamic covenant. So let me go through that really quickly. Where's the blessing? Remember I said the blessing of the Adamic covenant is eternal life. Um, There are two clues in the text. So what I really love about, um, um, like one of the ways you define literature, what's the difference between literature and like, um, like popular, like, like magazine style articles or something. Things are non-obvious in literature. It requires a little bit digging. And this is what makes literature really fun because you have to think about it, right? So this is, this is true of the Bible. Bible is the world's greatest literature. So here's the two clues. Genesis 2, the first clue is there's a, there's a second tree. Right. If you read, if you read the Genesis account, you're wondering why are there two trees, and the, and the second tree doesn't come into effect. Um, here's why. So Genesis two nine, and out of the ground the Lord God made, made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So there is a second tree in the garden. It's the tree of life. And then, where do you see that tree come up again? You see it at the very end of the story, Revelation 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So what this shows us is that in Revelation, right, we're going to eat the tree of life, which means because we're under Christ, which means all along Adam was supposed to eat the tree of life, Adam and Eve, if he had kept the covenant. But now we get to eat the tree of life in Christ. There's a second clue. So the first clue is the tree of life. The second clue is the Sabbath. Uh, Genesis 2.3, So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So there's actually a positive command in Genesis, which is that God told Adam, God put Adam in the garden. And what did he tell? Did he say, you know, have a siesta, you know, drink pina coladas and relax? He says, work the garden, right? He was to tend the garden. Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and keep it. And what is the reward of work? The reward of work is rest. And rest isn't just like cessation of work. You're just like, oh, tired. Like the way I think of it is, um, um, like I'm going to use my boys as an illustration. I always check with them, but I, I this time I didn't check. But um, here's my illustration. When they create a Lego creation, at the end, 
they like to display it and look at it, right? They like to enjoy it. And so what is that? What are you doing? You're enjoying, you're resting. You're not actually doing anymore, right? You're, 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 you're experiencing satisfaction. Um, so that's what rest is. Rest is a kind of positive experience, if that makes sense, right? So you, you see that in Hebrews 4, 9 through 11. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. So it's a little bit complicated language, but basically the Sabbath day is a symbol of heaven, right? It's, it's this eternal rest. And so because there was a Sabbath day, because there was a tree of life, that's the blessing that Adam was supposed to get, but he never got it because he broke the covenant. Um, any quick questions before we go on to the, to the second point or to the, to the next point? John, yes. Maybe unrelated. Okay. But I heard a, a, one pastor say we're still in the seventh day of rest. Can you speak on that? Because well, actually, it says in Hebrews, "Let us strive to enter that rest." So we haven't entered it. But I understand what he's saying because there's no ending to that day. I think the, the no ending to the day because there's day and night, evening and morning. There's that refrain. There's no evening and morning refrain for the Sabbath day. I think it's because it's an eternal day. It's, it's an everlasting day. And so it's a picture of heaven, which will last forever and ever and ever. We haven't entered it yet. Because if we had entered it, then we would be ah, enjoying but we're not. We're striving. Life, this life is toil, thorns and thistles. Yeah, but good question. Um. Okay. So. Wait. Sorry. I don't want to waylay you too much. Yeah. Piggybacking off of John's question. Yes. So, what is the Sabbath that we enjoy now? Um. Interesting that we have these episodic Sabbaths, right? So it's a foretaste. It's a it's a preview. Today is the Sabbath, or the Christian Sabbath. Um, none of you guys are working. <laughs> um, you have a temporary cessation from your toils. And um, it's a kind of preview. It's a foretaste. It's an appetizer. You're not at the feast. You're just eating hors d'oeuvres every, every week. Yeah. Does that satisfy? Is that, yeah. Okay. Yes, Mason. I mean... In that case, it kind of means that we probably shouldn't work for like corrupt companies. And yeah, because that just makes our work more yeah. toilsome and soul-killing, right? <laughs> and not on the Sabbath. Although, you know, historically, um, Christians have always allowed for um, works of mercy and necessity. So, cops, nurses, we need them to work on the Sabbath because yeah, people still get sick on the Sabbath. All right. I think Dorothy has a question. Yes, Dorothy. Um, just to go back to the idea of covenants, the, is the idea then that had Adam not, or Adam and Eve not eaten of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, that, that this tree of life would be like forever? Yeah, we'd be eating it with them. It's kind of interesting. Yes. Um, if Adam and Eve kept the covenant, would we still be like around? Would we what? Would we be alive? Would we be alive? Yeah. Because children is not a result of the curse. Pain
painful child rearing is the result of the curse. But Adam and Eve were always supposed to have children. How do we know what they were supposed to do? You just go to Revelation. That's what they were supposed to do. So they were supposed to build a city, because you see the New Jerusalem in Revelation. They were supposed to cultivate and subdue, have dominion over the whole earth. They were to fill the earth with the image of God. Remember, that's the, that's the commission. Fill the whole earth. How do you fill the earth with the image of God? With a bunch of children, right? Image bearers. And, and then that's what, that's what was supposed to happen. All right. Um, let me go to the next point. So I'm really excited about this. Now that you understand the concept of covenant... You understand this is the basic structure of the Bible. And the basic structure of the Bible is there are two covenants. There's a covenant of works, and then there's a covenant of grace. Okay? This is the basic framework. This is the organizing structure. From Genesis 1 and 2, you have the covenant of works. And then um, Genesis 3 and on, you have the covenant of grace. And the covenant of grace does not contradict the covenant of works. It's just layered on top. Okay? And all the rest of the Bible from Genesis 3 and on, everything that you read, First and Second Samuels, Psalms, Ezra, Nehemiah, it's all just working out the covenant of grace, okay? The covenant of grace does not contradict the covenant of works. God does not change his mind. God does not say, I used to judge on um, good works, but now I, I just have mercy and grace on people. No, God still judges on good works. The only thing is he adds this new covenant where he provides a savior, which is the second Adam, Right. However, the covenant of works and the covenant of grace are also opposing principles in the Bible. And you see this tension all the time. And, the, and this is a major theme in the Bible because the rest of Scripture is telling us again and again the covenant of works is over in the sense that we cannot be saved through it. Our good works do not save us. Human beings want to live the covenant of works. But the Bible is a long, long story that this is a dead end. So, dead end. This is a dead path. We are under the penalty. And when people confuse these two covenants, it brings all kinds of problems in our lives. Because the, the, the human heart naturally wants to do this, it gives us anxiety. Have we done enough good works? We feel depressed when we experience failure because it's a kind of verdict that makes us think we're, we're failing here. And then when we think we're succeeding, it fills us with pride and we sort of have to stain on other people. We, look, we have judgment on other people. And you see this opposing principle in Galatians 2.16. Paul writes, We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So what Paul is saying is the works of the law is the, um, is the good works, the good deeds of the covenant of works. And the, the, the best example of it is the Mosaic covenant. We'll talk about that next week. But the covenant of grace is based on faith. 
And so he's, he's making faith and works opposing principles. So we receive it by faith. And faith is not a work. Faith is the open hand that receives a gift. It's the opposite of works. And you're basically trusting in a savior, right? So it's not just faith in faith, but faith in Christ. Um, let's read Galatians 3, 10 through 11. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, right? <laughs> the whole Bible is trying to emphasize we're dead. <laughs> we're under a curse, under Adam. There's no like relitigating this covenant, right? It's over. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. So if we are to be um, declared righteous, it has to be through faith in Jesus Christ. The Adamic covenant brought the curse, and now we can only be justified by faith. That's, that's the point. Um, I'm going to talk about the covenant theology and dispensationalism next, but any questions there? on the basic structure of the Bible. Yes, Noah. Um, does Jesus have to do with that? Yes. So the covenant of works, who is the representative head in the covenant of works? Yes? Jesus? Oh, Adam. Adam. So the covenant of grace is just the covenant of works under a new representative head. Who's the new rep- who's the second Adam? Yes? Jesus. Yeah, Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? I just want to make a comment. Yes. I, like all this time, I didn't realize the covenant of works was still in effect because the language of the New Testament is that the covenant of works is dead. Yes. But I realize now it's not annulled. It's not revoked. No. It's just a dead end. Yes. Ineffective to to give us blessing. It That's right. Only give us curse. That's right. But it's still in effect. It's still in effect. Okay. There will be people who will suffer an eternity in hell, and they are experiencing the covenant of works. Because their head is not Christ. That's right. Their representative head is still. It's still Adam. They're dead in Adam. They're under the curse. And for all of eternity, we will, we will enjoy the blessing of the covenant of works, but only because we have a new head, the second Adam, Christ. Yes, Christy? So in a way, Jesus fulfills the covenant of works for us through his, through his sacrifice. Right, which, which is not a change in the rules, mm-hmm. because Adam could have fulfilled it for us too. So we... The covenant of works in the garden, it was never individual performance. It was always representative head um, performance, if that makes sense. Wait, so Adam could have fulfilled it for us by not taking of the tree of knowledge. Right, so not disobeying, not um, um, taking the forbidden fruit, but also the positive, which is the work in... He never took... I mean, this is like kind of a random detail, but he never actually ate from the tree of life in the garden. That was the the reward. Yeah, so it was a reward that was waiting. So if you read the rest of Genesis, it says they have to be banished so that they cannot eat the tree of life. 
And then the tree of life is sort of locked up. And then we see it come back in the story in Revelation 22. So from the point of his creation, his existence, to the point of being in the garden, like that short, it was a very short time? We don't know, yeah. We don't know exactly the duration, yeah. But, but it makes sense that it wasn't too long. Yeah, it was a probationary period, yeah. So he was perfectly innocent. There was no sin in him, but he didn't perform positive righteousness. Yeah. Yes, Mason? What happened to the tree of life and the tree of knowledge? Are they still around? <laughs> well, the tree of life is awaiting us. We will partake and eat of it. Um, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. It, I mean, like, was it like a particular, like, was there like evil juice in the fruit, right? It was just, in my, in my thought, God just just said that tree. It's probably too much knowledge. Yeah, just don't eat that tree. Why? Trust me <laughs> and obey me. Don't eat from that tree. And if Adam had obeyed, that he, through the tree, he would have experienced obedience and righteousness. But he didn't. He said, let me, <laughs> I can't, now I'm going to eat it. Yeah. All right, let's go on. So, the Bible in a nutshell. All right. Um, this is exciting. So now we're going to telescope out. Um, we're not going to talk about any of the other covenants. Uh, that's for the subsequent classes. We're not going to talk about, talk about the Noahic, Mosaic, Abrahamic. Instead, we're going to talk about the or- organizing structure of the Bible. Okay, and the organizing structure of the Bible is two covenants. Okay. Covenant of works. Covenant of grace. And I hope you can see that the covenant of, of, of grace includes... Wait, I'm, my, my, my brain is farting here. Um, oh, yes. Okay. Um, it's, it's from Genesis 3 and on. Right? So the covenant of grace includes the Old Testament and the New Testament. And thus, the Bible has an organizing structure. A lot of times people think the Old Testament and New Testament is this sharp distinction. And so a lot of people think, oh, the Old Testament, you're saved by works in the Old Testament. And in the New Testament, you're saved by grace. And it does have that sort of surfacey, superficial appearance. But the thesis I'm trying to present to you is no, no, no. From Genesis 3 and on, it's all the covenant of grace. We'll talk about how the Mosaic Covenant fits into that. But therefore, it organizes and unites the Old Testament and the New Testament. And the Old Testament is the covenant of grace and the coming of Christ spoken through types and shadows. Right, So kind of like hints and clues. So the Old Testament will say, uh, you need a Passover lamb. He needs to be perfect and spotless. You need to slay him and cover your household with him. Mm, think about that, right? So it's types and shadows. And then the New Testament says, behold, the Passover lamb who takes away the sins of the world. That's Jesus, right? So I love this quote, Augustine. Um, the New Testament lies hidden in the Old, and the Old Testament lies is unveiled in the New. Okay, um, and so the covenant of works is Adam is the head. He was a bad head. He failed us. 
Um, but we have a new head who is Christ. Second Adam, what Adam failed to do, Christ fulfilled. Christ was also faced with the, the, the test of a tree. Um, he was also tempted. Adam was tempted in a lush garden. Christ was tempted in a wilderness. So everything is just much harder, much more difficult. And Christ fulfilled it for us. Um, so the two major competing theological systems is called covenant theology and dispensationalism. And what I presented to you is basically covenant theology just to let you know that's my view. <laughs> that's my position. Um, and so covenant theology and dispensationalism, they're trying to understand all of the individual stories in the Bible. How do they fit together? Or how do we understand them? And covenant theology, in my opinion, is very simple. Um, because it, this is the story. It's a very simple story, two basic covenants. Old Testament and New Testament is a single story. One anticipates, the other reveals. But here's the criticism of covenant theology. The criticism, the major, major criticism is that it does too much symbolic interpretation. So in order to get the Old Testament and New Testament, this is the criticism, the Old Testament and New Testament to sort of fit together, you have to like use a lot of symbolism. Right? So the story of Israel in the wilderness, well, that's like the Christian life. Or Israel striving to enter the land, that's us trying to get to heaven. And the criticism is that it's not literal. Um, whereas dispensationalism will say, no, 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 you have to do literal interpretation. And so the land of Israel, the land of Canaan, it doesn't represent heaven, it's j- it represents the land. Right? And so all of the language and prophecy about the land has to do with the land. Right? There, so there's all this prophecy in Isaiah and so forth where it says people will come streaming into the land. That's literally going to happen from the dispensationalist perspective. Uh, whereas covenant theology says it's all about Christ, it's all about the covenant of grace. Um, so I have a little chart, a little graph there. Um, the major argument of covenant theology is that the Mosaic covenant and the new covenant is one and the same. There is a tension. We're going to talk about that. That I mean, that's where the rubber meets the road. There is a tension, but it's one and the same. It's a single covenant, covenant of grace. Dispensationalism, on the other hand, is a very complicated system, in my opinion. There are seven epochs, seven like uh, distinct region or, or stages of the Bible. Each is independent of the other. Dispensationalism preserves Israel as a separate people. So if you look at my little graph, there's a little line from Israel to the millennium. That's because there's all of these prophecies about Israel, right? The glory of Israel, the temple is going to be rebuilt. Um, there's going to be a climactic battle where Israel is going to fight the nations. And how does that fit in with the New Testament church? It doesn't. 
So this is why you have the rapture. The rapture evacuates the New Testament church, the Gentiles, out of the story so that the story of Israel can continue. And then the millennium is the fulfillment of all of those stories, the climactic battle, Armageddon, etc., etc. Whereas covenant theology says it's all one story. And so we're already in Armageddon. We're already experiencing this climactic battle, except it's not pagan nations. It's a world of unbelief and darkness. We are, the church is the new, is the new Israel. And so this is a huge criticism of covenant theology. It's derisively called replacement theology. I don't know if you've heard of that. We've replaced the new, uh, we've replaced the, the, the Jewish, uh, the, the, the Jewish people. Um, and so that's a big criticism. Um, so yeah, it has implications for eschatology. Um, it has a, let, let me do it quickly. Uh, implications for infant baptism. So infant baptism is a big, big battleground between these two systems. Wait, could you just back up? Yeah. Talk about dispensationalism, like in terms of what we're familiar with. Yeah. I think a lot of us are familiar with that theology, yeah. but not by that name. Yeah. Can you talk about where we would encounter this paradigm of? Yeah. So dispensationalism sees each um, section of the Bible as sort of operating as an independent ecosystem. Right. So what denominations or what types of evangelical connections embrace dispensationalism? Um, I mean, for the most part. Uh, um, covenant theology is is another name for it is reformed theology so reformed denominations like Presbyterians Dutch reformed and then uh, dispensationalism is more prevalent among Baptists but there's a lot of Baptists who are deeply attracted to covenant theology so there's all kinds of hybrid versions which I didn't want to complicate right but there's like um, something called progressive dis- covenant theology. I mean, sorry, progressive dispensationalism, which is a blending of the two systems. But the basic, basic distinction is Israel is a separate people. So anytime you see, like, here's a common way to know, oh, you're encountering dispensationalism. When people say we have to support Israel, right? If you hear that, um, messaging. Political nation of Israel, we have to support Israel. We have to stand with Israel because they're the chosen people. All of that is dispensationalism because it it, it understands Israel as a literal people that they have their own prophecies that have to be fulfilled. Whereas covenant theology says Israel is just modern day Israel is not Old Testament Israel. It's just another nation. They are genetic descendants of of uh, Abraham, you know, but but the new Israel, that's the church. And therefore, we can treat Israel as just a, nor- a, a normal nation. Maybe you, you, you do some tourism there to see the Holy Land. <laughs> but th- does that help? Okay. Um, let, me do, let me run through infant baptism really quickly. So the whole argument for infant baptism is based on covenant theology. Infant baptism makes no sense unless you understand covenant theology because covenant theology says Old Testament and New Testament, there's profound continuity. So whatever the rules of the Old Testament are, apply in the New Testament, unless Jesus specifically says it was always a symbolic, um, it was always a, a symbolic teaching. Like Jesus says, 
Jesus declared all foods clean. So that was always a symbolism to help us to understand the holiness of God. But the Old Testament has something called circumcision. It's a sign that you mark on children to let them know they belong to the Lord. And therefore, the New Testament has a sign to let you know you belong to the Lord. And so you apply to children as well. The New Testament does not explicitly say you cannot baptize children. And there is no verse that explicitly says you must baptize children. So in the absence of any explicit instruction, how do you determine whether or not you should baptize children? You use a, a, um, an assumptional framework called covenant theology. And you say the same rules apply. We're one people. Whereas Baptists... Our Baptist friends, who I dearly love, our Baptist friends who are under the influence of dispensationalism will say, no, 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 Old Testament, New Testament, distinct ecosystems. And so just because you circumcise babies doesn't mean you baptize babies. Different rules apply. All right. So we have 10 minutes. Questions? Yes, Christy. So this is going to back the, uh, the, ad, the covenant of Adam. Yeah. So... You know, I know in Romans 5, Paul says sin came through one man. But we all know that Eve was the first person to sin. Um, and obviously she's a woman. So I'm just wondering, how does that... How does that fit? How does that how work? Does that right? How does that work together? Yeah. Um, so Adam's sin was the, was the critical decision, not Eve. But it is Eve who sinned first, mm-hmm. right? Um, so th- I think what's going on in this story then is um, Satan, Satan hates God and he hates all the things of God. So he doesn't do a frontal attack and go to Adam. Instead, he does this very subversive attack and he goes to Adam's spouse. He goes to Adam's um, helpmate, uh, Eve. And so it's an indirect attack against Adam or against humanity through Eve. And even when he talks to Eve, he's very sly. He doesn't say, disobey, <laughs> right? He, he starts to ask these sly questions. So everything is subversive. So I think Eve's role is that um, he was being subversive because instead of going to the representative head, he goes to the, the helpmate, if that makes sense. Yeah. So he's turning everything on its head. Yeah, because he, he just he's the great destroyer. Yeah. So if Eve had, if Adam had not sinned, but Eve had, then we would be in a different situation. Um, that is an interesting hypothetical. <laughs> I'm not sure what the answer to that is. I actually think um, when Eve sinned, it was locked. The, the decision was locked in. I think because Adam failed to sh- protect Eve. So, you know. This is the way I sort of imagine it. Adam is sitting there passively listening to Satan have a conversation with Eve. And Adam's role would have been like, how dare you? Right? And then just like stomp on the serpent and cast him out. But he's like, oh, you know, he's listening in. Even the the serpent is directly talking to Eve. He was a passive enabler. I think is what was going on. But the text doesn't say. So it's really interesting, right? Like we're allowed to speculate to some degree because we're like, what, what are the d- dynamics here? But we're not told explicitly. Yeah. We're not told that Adam was far away, like wandering around and he came back. He's like, oh, hey, what did you do? Right? Um, my personal thought is Adam was there. The text actually says that, that he was there with her. 
right, I guess so. <laughs> it would help if it said, yeah, he was sitting there and listening. And <laughs> I think it does. Not that he was listening, but it says, who was, it says, and Adam, who was there with her. Hmm. I, sorry, I heard somebody ask a similar question a long time ago, and that's what the teacher said, so. That's, that's, that's plausible, yeah, I, I accept that. Any, any other questions or comments? Where is uh, communion in all of that? Communion? Yeah, so um, the New Testament sacraments, the New Testament doesn't fundamentally introduce new things under this whole scheme. It's continuing the Old Testament um, structures. And so there is a meal of fellowship in the Old Testament. What would, what's the meal of fellowship in the Old Testament? That you remember salvation, you eat together. Huh? Seder. Pass. Well, yeah. Well, Seder is the Sabbath meal. But um, what, what's an annual? Yes. Passover. Passover. In fact, that connection is explicit. The Last Supper was Passover, right? Jesus. Jesus says, "This bread of affliction is actually my body. This wine that we drink is actually my blood." Yeah. And, and, and any other questions? Or does that satisfy you, John? Yes. So infant baptism is carrying over the sign, which is circumcision. The Lord's table is carrying over the meal of fellowship, which is Passover. Notice, by the way, circumcision and Passover involves blood. You have to slaughter a lamb. You have to cut the foreskin. So it's very bloody. And then in the New Testament, there's no blood. Why? Because the blood was always a sort of foretelling prophecy. It's talking about Jesus. Now that Jesus has been crucified, we don't have to apply a sign that is bloody. Yes? yes. So what I get from the uh, Old Testament, or from uh, the covenant works and covenant grace is that uh, covenant works is more of like a physical thing, a uh, physical act, and then covenant of grace is more of like a spiritual uh, thing, so I'm, what I'm getting is like in order for your works to have meaning, you have to uh, well, I mean, no work is no like we can't really know what the truth is, but then uh, we can educate ourselves. So when uh, I don't know, it's hard to explain, but um, I just. What I'm getting from it is that uh, you need to have you need to have both like faith and works in order to Yes. So you need faith and works. We'll talk about that next week, which is always the cheap cop out answer of every teacher. But we'll talk about that. Um, our time has run out, so let me pray. Almighty God, thank you so much for Scripture that reveals your will and your your character and that we can study it and we can ponder deeply. Uh, much of the details um, we do not understand or requires great study, but we, we thank you that um, the simple truth that Jesus Christ is the Savior is very clear and very evident. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you, class.